Now, I want to take a brief moment to cover a particular type of gothic horror story, and I'm sure I'm going to butcher this pronunciation, uh, but that comes in the Germanic uh, term Schauermann, uh, which sometimes was equated with the term gothic novel, but this is only partially true. Uh, both genres are based on the terrifying side of the Middle Ages, and both frequently feature the same elements of castles and ghosts and monsters, etc. However, the Schauermann's key elements are necromancy and secret societies, and it's remarkably more pessimistic than the British Gothic novel. And I just wanted to make mention of this brand of Gothic horror, since I think it's important to relay that the elements of sinister and diabolical secret societies began to come into play as a storytelling mechanism at this point, as well as the ideas of necromancy and bringing the dead back to life through occult means and magic and witchcraft. And then it was sometime during the 1770s and uh, 1780s that the work of Faust is most famously introduced, which is a play written by German author Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, and is considered one of the greatest works of German literature, and of which the idea of the Faustian bargain with the devil became more popularized. But the origin of Faust's bargain with Mephistopheles uh, actually originated some 200 years before, with the historical figure, Johann George Faust, who had long been a popular protagonist in German legend and folklore uh, by the time that Goethe had published his vision or translation of the story. Uh, Now, the popular figure of Faust is highly successful, yet dissatisfied with his life, which leads him to making a pact with the devil at a crossroads, exchanging his soul for unlimited knowledge and worldly pleasures. The Faust legend has been the basis for many literary, artistic, cinematic, and musical works uh, that have reinterpreted it through the ages. Faust, in the uh, adjective of Faustian, implies a situation in which an ambitious person surrenders moral integrity in order to achieve power and success for a limited time. So while it was perhaps with Johann Wolfgang von Goethe that the legend of Faust became most popularized, the folklore of Johann George Faust is actually centered around a historical figure that lived roughly 200 years before the famous play emerged. And likewise, this was the introduction, or at least the popularization, of the classic idea of making a deal with the devil at the crossroads, which is still alive in the 21st century. The idea of making a pact with the devil at a crossroads is nearly 500 years old at this point. And the artwork of the times can continue to evolve as well, as it was in 1784 that Henry Fuseli, uh, who was a professor of painting at the British Royal Academy, would paint his famous piece entitled The Nightmare. And Fuscelli was mainly known for his dark and macabre subject matter, and The Nightmare is most well known as one of his works that, uh, if people saw it today, this painting, they would recognize it, even if they didn't know who painted it. And The Nightmare depicts a fair maiden dressed in a sheer white gown, who appears to be sleeping, while a strange little imp, or incubus, sits on her chest, uh, while looking directly into the eyes of the the viewer. And it's a beautifully rendered, uh, yet haunting piece of artwork. And as we discussed earlier, uh, both the idea of the Inquisition playing a huge role in the evolution of horror, as well as the Shaoroman gothic novel uh, story, heavily relying on elements of secret societies and their involvement in dark and nefarious deeds of necromancy, in 1795 we have the publication of the novel entitled The Monk by Matthew Lewis. And The Monk is a lurid tale of monastic debauchery, black magic, and diabolism that is charged with sexual intensity and brought the mode of horror in England to full force. Lewis's portrayal of depraved monks, sadistic inquisitors, and spectral nuns, and his social commentary towards the Catholic Church appalled some readers, and there were even calls to ban the book. But the monk was important in the genre's development 
and was a bit of a social commentary against the Catholic Church at a time when the fire and the fury of the Inquisitions was finally winding down. Uh, the monk's plot is both uh, convoluted and scandalous, which made it one of the most important Gothic novels of its time, often imitated and adapted for the stage and the screen. And likewise, I'd like to take a moment to mention the novels of author Anne Radcliffe in the 1790s, who's noted as the most popular writer of romantic Gothic fiction of the day, and her approach to certain supernatural elements is credited with finally giving a certain aura of respectability uh, and sophistication to the Gothic novel that would be influential for centuries to come. Uh, she was the most best-selling author of the day, as well as the highest-paid author of that decade. Um, in the year 1800, uh, the book Wake Not the Dead by Johann Ludwig Tieck becomes the first English vampire novel, uh, though the work itself was translated from German. Uh, next up, we explore the roots and long tendrils of horror. Uh, there's no catalog or essay which could be complete without the mention of the Grimm's fairy tales, originally known as the Children and Household Tales. Now, Grimm is a German collection of fairy tales by the Grimm brothers, or Brothers Grimm, Jacob and Wilhelm, first published on December 20th of 1812. And the first edition contained 86 stories, and by the seventh edition in 1857, uh, 210 unique fairy tales now grace the book. And as with all things Gothic, there remains German roots of folklore within the Grimm's fairy tales, many of which have been handed down over generations of oral storytelling. Uh, before being adapted by the brothers. And we all know that the Grimm fairy tales are far from what the Disney adaptations have made them out to be in the modern era. And in fact, most of the stories of the brothers Grimm are filled with sinister implications, murder, blood, wickedness, and evil lurking around every corner. Uh, primarily, it was used as a lesson for children to mind their manners and obey their parents. And when we think of the Grimm fairy tales, we must consider uh, some interesting facts here, that the old English Grimm, G-R-I-M-M, actually means fierce and cruel and savage, severe, dire, and painful. And the Proto-Germanic Grimma uh, means angry and fierce. And the Old Norse Grimmar, G-R-I-M-M-R, means stern and horrible and dire. And the Swedish version of Grim, G-R-Y-M, means fierce and furious. And there was no shortage of the sinister and the wicked and the diabolical and morbid in these early Grim fairy tales, many of which in themselves were based on earlier oral German folklores. And we can't leave out the old Grim Reaper when discussing this topic either. So there's no denying that the impact that the publication of the, the Grim fairy tales had on the history and evolution of the horror genre, and in particular the horror drama uh, in literature. And in 1835, it was Danish uh, writer Hans Christian Andersen who would go on to publish the work entitled Tales Told for Children, which is also heavily reminiscent of the sinister stories and keeping in similar tradition to the grim fairy tales. And the Gothic novel uh, takes another importantly dramatic and monumental turn in June of 1816, when for three days, Lord Byron, Percy Shelley, Mary Woolen Stonecraft Shelley and Dr. John Palladori showed a villa at Lake Geneva, and likely under the influence of narcotics, they decided to have a ghost story writing contest. The result was that Mary Shelley, who was then only 18 years old, is popularly believed to have originated the genre of science fiction with the tragic story of Frankenstein in 1818, otherwise known as the modern Prometheus, uh, which is considered a masterpiece both of science fiction and of horror. Now, while Frankenstein's monster is an original concept, 
and uh, also helped to give rise to the birth of zombies in horror literature. The idea of the resurrected human by mystical or magical means wasn't necessarily new at the time, as the story of the Jewish golem goes back to the earliest tales of Judaism and the Talmud and the Old Testament. And the golem is a supernatural being made of clay, or made of the earth, that typically is created in order to defend the Jewish people, and the entity of the golem was popularized sometime in the 1500s AD. So, while Frankenstein is an original concept, uh, it's also somewhat based upon the Judaic golem, which is an artificial being created, usually for purposes of vengeance or revenge. And in a very interesting side note, when her husband, the romantic uh, poet Percy Shelley, died tragically in 1822, Instead of burying it with uh, the remains at the Protestant cemetery in Rome, Mary kept his heart in a silken shroud and is said to have carried it with her nearly everywhere for years. In 1852, a year after she died, Percy's heart was found in her desk drawer. It was wrapped in the pages of one of his last poems called Adonis. And there's something so beautifully and romantically twisted about that. And we mentioned John Polidori, who was also involved in this contest to write a ghost story and then would go on to help establish the vampire subgenre with the publication of The Vampire, V-A-M-P-Y-R, in 1819. Dr. Polidori's work was originally attributed to Lord Byron, and the main character is indeed a character of him. So at this famous meeting of the minds in a random contest to read a ghost story, with that we have the masterpiece of Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus, written by a then 18-year-old Mary Shelley in 1818, as well as The Vampire by Dr. John Palladori, which would go on to heavily influence the birth of the vampire novel in 1819. There's no denying this event uh, greatly impacted and influenced the evolution of the horror novel and the path of horror literature for centuries to come. The impact of Frankenstein really can't be understated in the history and evolution of the horror novel and the birth of science fiction. And, of course, uh, it was the Universal Monster movies of the 1920s and 40s. Uh, the Universal Monster movies uh, helped revive many of these classic monsters into the spotlight like never before. And we'll definitely be talking a lot more in part two of this podcast about Universal Monsters and Universal Pictures uh, will be continued next episode. And coinciding with these other classic publications, we also have The Legend of Sleepy Hollow by author Washington Irving in 1819 which famously introduces us to the character of Ichabod Crane and the lasting villainy and terror of the Headless Horseman. And the Legend of Sleepy Hollow has been adapted many times since its publication in 1819 and is still being adapted to this day as one of the most popular tales of Halloween. The Headless Horseman is an iconic character usually now associated with All Hallows' Eve. And meanwhile, <coughs> running roughly diagonal to all of this, Horror was again flourishing on the British stage from 1790 to 1825. Uh, three theaters in particular offered spectators a host of horrific options. Fitz Ball's The Devil's Elixir, Matthew Lewis's The Castle Spectre, uh, and James Planch's The Vampire were just a few popular productions. And the last uh, that I'd mentioned actually led to the development of a new, new stage apparatus called The Vampire Trap. And these productions were both bloody and very expensive, becoming more and more elaborate. And there was a resurgence of horror in the theater and on the stage in the 1790s and into the 1820s, which helped to keep the genre alive as a running theme of entertainment. Then in 1831, we have the publication of the French Gothic novel The Hunchback of Notre Dame, uh, written by Victor Hugo, and which, along with Frankenstein and the Headless Horseman and a few others, are now uh, slowly building a world of recognizable monsters 
that are still popular nearly 200 years later. And we could possibly say that Frankenstein and the Headless Horseman and the Hunchback are among the very first monsters that play the starring role in their stories and are thrust into the mainstream as an iconic creation, uh, which would change the horror genre forever. And it's in this fact uh, that the it is in fact the Hunchback of Notre Dame that is the very first uh, universal monster movie which hit theaters in 1923 and starred Lon Chaney. Uh, so there were many uh, iconic characters and sympathetic monsters and anti-heroes that were being created back in the early 1800s and arguably starting with Frankenstein as the originator. And then the Industrial Revolution uh, came along and spelled major changes for horror literature in the 1840s. Literacy rates had improved. Cities were more crowded than ever. And people wanted a distraction from the less-than-idyllic life of industrialized cities. And horror during this time period became more visceral and gory. Here we have the birth of the Penny Blood, or the Penny Dreadful, which emerged as a cheap form of entertainment for mass audiences. And the stage equivalent of this was the Penny Gaff, and it was Edward Lloyd who made quite a fortune for himself off of the Penny Dreadfuls. He'd already dipped uh, into the horror genre with, with Thomas Prest's uh, The Calendar of Horrors in the 1830s, and he simply adapted that to a more recognizable and easily mass-produced form, uh, which was uh, more of a little pamphlet than an actual book. That's what the Penny Dreadfuls were. And it was Thomas Prest who brought us Sweeney Todd, the Demon Barber, in 1846, and James Malcolm Reimer, who was behind the very popular Varney the Vampire series, which was serialized in the, 19, uh, in the uh, 1840s and ended up being, uh, when collected, a whopping 876-page book with an epic 232 chapters and a total of 667,000 words. It was Varney the Vampire series, which popularized several tropes about the vampire, which has lasted into the modern era such as having sharp teeth and sucking blood from the neck of their victims. And this series had a huge influence on the vampire genre over the next 50 years. It was George uh, Reynolds, Reynold Wagner's uh, The Werewolf, was then published in 1846, and the sale of the Penny Dreffel uh, boomed from 1830 to the 1870s. <coughs> of course, at this time, many parents and Puritan people uh, saw the exposure to Penny Dreffels as a surefire path to juvenile delinquency and the degradation of civilized society. Parents banned the cheap books and frequently burned them if they found them in the child's possession. And it was that unforgiving destruction which gives the Penny Dreadful collectors an interesting, though not insurmountable, challenge because it made these books all the more rare and hard to find. Now, the popularity of the Penny Dreadful and its subsequent calls by Puritan elements as causing juvenile delinquency or a demoralization of society brings to mind a couple of things here. And the first is how it's similar to the ridicule that the graveyard poets of a hundred years before had faced, being deemed a cheap garbage that had no value or merit and which was contributing to the fall of society. Like the public outcry of religious zealots against the Penny Dreadfuls, so too were the graveyard poets met with such resistance and opposition in their works. And it's funny how this runs in cycles of every hundred years or so, because in line with the graveyard poets in the 1700s and the Penny Dreadfuls of the 1800s, it was the classic comic book publisher EC Comics with their line of horror and tales from the crypt, the vault of horror, and the haunts of fear, and which in the 1950s, along with other uh, popular uh, horror comic books at the time, were deemed disgusting trash and contributing to juvenile delinquency, and were subsequently outright banned by the birth of the Comics Code Authority. Now, we're jumping ahead a little bit here, and we'll definitely talk about the EC horror comic boom and the books of the, uh, the 1950s, including Tales from the Crypt, in the next episode of this podcast. 
but I just wanted to make a mention of the similarities in comparison and ridicule and opposition, which met the graveyard poets of the 1750s and the penny dreadfuls of the 1850s and the horror comic books of the 1950s. Before we move forward here, we have to take a moment to properly highlight who is now considered the master of the age of modern horror and one of the most influential writers of the 19th and 20th centuries, and that is with the work of Mr. Edgar Allan Poe, who has long been heralded as a master of the macabre and connoisseur of the weird tale. Now, so much has already been stated about Edgar Allan Poe over the past century, and it was in the 1830s and 1840s in which Poe initially rose to prominence with tales such as Fall at the House of Usher, The Pit and the Pendulum, and The Telltale Heart. But arguably, most notably, he gained the most recognition with his famous poem, The Raven, which was published in 1845 and made Poe into a bit of a household name. But to set the stage for the arrival of Edgar Allan Poe, I'm once again going to read a passage from the book Supernatural Horror in Literature by H.P. Lovecraft, in which he discusses the works of Poe, uh, who was very influential upon his own works of Lovecraft, as well as pretty much every horror author ever since. Quote, In the 1830s occurred a literary dawn directly affecting not only the history of the weird tale, but that of short fiction as a whole, and indirectly molding the trends and fortunes of a great European aesthetic school. It is our good fortune as Americans to be able to claim that dawn as our own, for it came in the person of our illustrious and unfortunate fellow countryman Edgar Allan Poe. Poe's fame has been subject to curious undulations, and it is now in fashion amongst the advanced intelligia to minimize his importance both as an artist and as an influence. But it would be hard to deny for any mature and reflective critic to deny the tremendous value of his work and the pervasive potency of his mind as an opener of artistic vistas. True, his type of outlook may have been anticipated, but it was he who first realized its possibilities and gave it supreme form and uh, systematic expression. True also that subsequent writers may have produced greater single tales than his, but again, we must comprehend that it was only he who taught them by example and precept the art which they, uh, having the way uh, cleared for them and given an explicit guide, uh, were perhaps able to carry to greater lengths. Whatever his limitations, Poe did that which no one else ever did or could have done, and to that we owe him uh, in the modern horror story in its final and perfected state. End quote. And once again, there are so many things that we could say about Edgar Allan Poe, uh, but there aren't that many people today who would dispute his impact on tales of the weird and uncanny and the evolution of horror literature and even the creation of the detective story. Uh, Poe added new elements of human psychology and human depravity into the mix. And adding to the allure of Poe is also the fact that he himself struggled with many demons and losses over the course of his life, which led to extreme bouts of alcoholism and depression. And while his works, uh, while his works, and in particular The Raven, made him famous, he only received about $9 for the work, which is about $350 by today's standards of inflation. And he died just a few short years later, uh, on October 7th, 1849, at the young age of 40 years old. And to this day, there's no conclusive explanation of how Poe died or what led to his demise, which is only further added to the mystery of his life. And one can only imagine what tales Edgar Allan Poe might have written had he lived a few more decades and been able to further hone his craft, uh, develop his style, and explore the macabre landscape of his imagination. And nothing really needs to be said more about Edgar Allan Poe because I'm sure everyone listening out there is aware of his influence on the genre of weird fiction, as well as being the originator of the detective story. 
and uh, even the more scandalous aspect of his life and the mystery surrounding his death uh, adds to his lore. But in closing his legacy, I would like to read one of my favorite poems by Edgar Allan Poe, entitled Alone. Alone. From childhood's hour, I have not been as others were. I have not seen as others saw. I could not bring my passions from a common spring. From that same source, I have not taken my sorrow. I could not awaken my heart to joy at the same tone. And all I loved, I loved alone. Then in my childhood, in the dawn of my most stormy life, was drawn from every depth of good or ill, the mystery which binds me still, from the torrent or the fountain, from the red cliff of the mountain, from the sun that round me rolled in its autumn tints of gold, from the lightning in the sky as it passed me flying by, from the thunder and the storm and the cloud that took the form, when the rest of heaven was blue, of a demon in my view. And then in 1847, we have the publication of Weathering Heights by Emily Bronte, which is filled with beautiful prose of gothic and romantic landscapes and hauntingly supernatural subject matter. Many reviewers have made the claim that Wuthering Heights might be the greatest English written novel of all time. And as with the works of Anne Radcliffe in the 1790s, the gothic and supernatural tale evolved with Wuthering Heights and took on a more respectable aura of sophistication and refinement. Then Robert Browning published The Ring and the Book in 1868 and 1869, and it remains the longest narrative poem in the English language. The poem was also the first notable work of horror based on a contemporary criminal, as Browning had based the poem on an old account uh, record he had found in 1860, detailing a man's murder of his wife. And perhaps Robert Browning is today most famous for Child Roland to the Dark Tower Came which is a narrative poem first published in 1855 in the anthology entitled Men and Women. The poem is often noted for its dark and atmospheric imagery, inversion of classic tropes, and use of, un and use of unreliable uh, narration. Now, Child Roland, uh, the only speaker in the poem, describes his journey towards the Dark Tower and his horror at what he sees on his quest. The poem ends when Roland finally reaches the tower, leaving his ultimate fate ambiguous. And I say uh, this is probably his most famous poem. For It's because uh, this is the main inspiration behind horror master Stephen King's epic eight-book collection, which is perhaps his crowning achievement, entitled the Dark Tower series, otherwise known as the Gunslinger series. And we will definitely talk a whole lot more about Stephen King in the next episode. A few years later, in 1872, Irish author Sheridan Le Fanu published the now-classic vampire tale entitled Camilla in his book Through a Glass Darkly. In this piece and others, Lefanu began to dismantle gothic artifices, bringing elements of horror and the supernatural into everyday life. The traditional trappings of gothic horror had begun to fall away. Now, Sheridan Lefanu uh, was one of the most influential writers of ghost stories and helped popularize the short story as a medium for ghost fiction. And some consider this, and Lefanu in particular, to represent the golden age of ghost fiction. And now, as the ideas of horror and the supernatural being brought into our everyday lives in a more uncanny twilight zone type of storytelling capacity, uh, due in large part to the ease and availability that books and the theater now had in everyone's lives, and even ominous and horrific elements of classical music began to have an influence, as the first phonographs, and records and record players were being experimented on from 1860 into the 1880s. And aside from books, 
The first phonographs and record players might be partially responsible for the idea of allowing this alien element or this strange technological or haunted ghost in the machine element into our homes. And likewise, at the same coinciding time, radio waves were first identified and studied by German physicist Heinrich Hertz in 1886, while the first radio transmitters and receivers were developed around 1895. Now, humanity was making huge technological advancements in a very short period of time, and entirely new technologies were being introduced with all new dimensions of storytelling capabilities and ideas which sparked the imagination of the creative mind. The first photography and film and moving pictures also come into play during this period, which would inevitably give birth to what would ultimately become Hollywood. And the public was becoming more and more interested in occult ideas and occult subject matter, uh, while an obsession began with the idea of spirit photography in the 1870s, while seances became in fashion with the release of the Ouija board in the 1880s. And we'll talk a little bit more uh, about the emergence and popularity of the occult and technology that occurred in the late 1800s, but I'd like to keep focusing on the literary elements of horror during the 1890s in this segment. The philosophical novel The Picture of Dorian Gray is published by Oscar Wilde in 1890, which itself is kind of a torchbearer to the old Faustian tale of making a deal with the devil. The book offended the moral sensibilities of some British book reviewers, a few of whom said that Oscar Wilde merited prosecution for violating the laws guarding public morality and decency. And surely those bad reviews only helped to increase some interest in the picture of Dorian Gray. And again, I can't help but to see Dorian Gray as being part of this new breed of a recognizable horror monster and a somewhat sympathetic anti-hero. And the book continues to be influential and is behind one of my favorite paintings by American artist Ivan Albrecht uh, from 1943. And that is housed at the Art Institute of Chicago. And the painting is a life-size portrait and depicts Dorian Gray and all of his macabre and grotesque glory. And is a truly chilling and memorable painting with a brilliant choice of color palette. Horror and the macabre and chilling images of the supernatural dread and fear and the, of the unknown continued to evolve in the art world and continues to evolve to this day. Then Ambrose Bierce published Can Such Things Be in 1893, which is a collection of ghost stories followed by his gritty Civil War stories, uh, which brought ghosts into the modern era. And Ambrose Bierce is probably most famously known for his book entitled The Damned Thing, which also appeared in 1893. And one of my favorite pieces by him is Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, uh, which has been adapted many times over the years and was beautifully presented in one of the final episodes of the original Twilight Zone series in the 1960s. Ambrose Pierce is considered one of the biggest influences on ghost stories and uncanny tales at the end of the 19th century. And during the same period, we have the classic and seminal masterpiece, The Great God Pan, which was written by horror master Arthur Machen in 1894. Other famous works by Arthur Machen are The Shining Pyramid, The White People, and many other tales of the weird and unsettling. Machen continued to bring the horror right into people's homes with everyday kinds of situations and interactions. And while his work wasn't necessarily a huge hit during his lifetime, and he struggled financially through most of his career, his works became considered classic literature over the following decades, with H.P. Lovecraft uh, in particular citing Machen as a huge influence and considering him one of the four people who were masters of the horror genre. 
Machen's uh, writing style might feel a little bit dated by today's standards, but there's no denying his ability to insinuate lurking terror that continually and patiently creeps up on the protagonist as well as the reader during the course of the story. He was a forerunner of cosmic and occult horror. Now, at the same time, a book called The King in Yellow, which was a book of short stories by uh, the author, uh, American author, writer Robert W. Chambers, that was first published in 1895 as well. And The King in Yellow includes four particular short stories that are all interconnected and describes the mysterious and ominous King in Yellow, which is a haunted and cursed play that induces madness and utter despair in all those who read it. This is quite possibly the first publication of the idea of a cursed or haunted object, uh, in this case a play, which causes madness in all those who view it. And this idea would influence movies such as In the Mouth of Madness by John Carpenter some hundred years later, as well as John Carpenter's episode of the Masters of Horror television series entitled Cigarette Burns. Author Ramsey Campbell in the 20th century also explored the idea of a haunted film in his book called Ancient Images. Uh, the first season of the popular HBO television series True Detective was also heavily influenced by The King in Yellow, and The King in Yellow has also been assimilated by author H.P. Lovecraft, who made the idea part of his Cthulhu mythos. And we can even argue that the idea of a cursed or haunted object uh, influenced the tale of the monkey's paw by author W.W. Jacobs in 1902. I'm personally fascinated by the idea of cursed and haunted objects. And particularly when it comes to cursed films or cursed books or plays or music and the theme of subliminal madness that slowly starts to take over. Then there was a game changer in 1897 when the strange sci-fi master H.G. Wells would publish The Invisible Man, otherwise known as a grotesque romance. And again, we go on to create a memorable and iconic horror character. That would be further solidified in status with the Universal Films of the 1930s. H.G. Wells would go on to a step further in 1898 with his classic War of the Worlds, which has been adapted many times over the years and is usually classified as a blend of science fiction and horror. And a look at horror into the future, presenting a whole new source of fear and anxiety for modern readers. And of course, H.G. Wells is also responsible for works like The Island of Dr. Moreau and many others that are very popular in their day and are considered classics of the genre of both science fiction as well as horror. And as Victorian ideas emerged and started to replace romantic ideals, authors also turned their awareness back to individual morality. The crowded cities had grown more impersonal and more violent, and suddenly one could no longer count on the goodness of others. It was an anxious time, a time when man's prosperity for evil could not be ignored, and thus uh, the era was ripe for a work like Robert Louis Stevenson's The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in 1885. And just like Robert Browning's The Ring and the Book from the 1860s, Jekyll and Hyde was based on a real story of a criminal whom Stevenson's family had actually once done business with, and the novella was an instant success. And again brings forward the idea that iconic monsters, now in the lead role of sympathetic anti-hero, was picking up steam. Uh, we also begin to see more of the true crime elements of horror, or works based on true stories that captured the headlines. Likewise, the gothic detective story of Poe was again heavily influential in the mix. And the birth of Sherlock Holmes by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle 
uh, begins in the late 1880s and early 1890s as well. And nothing more exemplifies this newly found fascination with true crime and sensational headlines or the gothic detective story like the case of Jack the Ripper in the Whitechapel District of London in 1888. Now, I don't think there are too many people out there who aren't at least somewhat familiar and aware of the events behind the Jack the Ripper case, but it is necessary to include that in this topic today. The uh, identity of Jack the Ripper was never discovered, but the case birthed the modern serial killer and remains one of the most fascinating counts of true crime on record. Now, there were at least 11 murders uh, stretching April of 1888 to February of 1891, mostly involving prostitutes with the grisly calling card of slitting the victims' throats before disemboweling them and removing some of their internal organs, which implied some type of surgical knowledge and a surgical set of tools needed in order to be so precise and focused on the job. Then mysterious letters began arriving at the police precinct claiming to be from the Ripper, which only further sparked the media craze and general hysteria surrounding the case. The true crime horror monster had slipped through fiction into the cracks of our everyday world and everyday reality, lurking in shadows and preying on its victim. The scenes of the crime with the Ripper murders were shocking and bloody, with the perpetrator being mysterious and cunning and perhaps even taunting the authorities to catch him. While there are many theories, uh, many so-called evidences supposedly proving the identity of Jack the Ripper, the Whitechapel Killer of 1888, the case has never been solved as to who was behind it or what was really behind the outbreak of these grisly murders. And once again, the occult secret society element came into play with the graphic novel and film adaptation of genius comic book writer Alan Moore's classic tale, From Hell, uh, the movie from 2001, which depicts Jack the Ripper as a high-ranking Freemason and surgeon, of which, at the beginning of the film, we are left with this quote, and it begins with this supposed quotation from Jack the Ripper, stating, quote, One day men will look back and say, I gave birth to the 20th century. And I see this supposed quote in two different ways. And one is that Jack the Ripper is actually a specter of celluloid and a demonic ghost in the machine of society and represents the pent-up energy of the invention of motion pictures and of film and radio and recordings and telephones and technology in general and its potentially ominous implications of inviting something terrible into your homes uh, with the front page of every newspaper. Part of me sees this idea of Jack the Ripper giving birth to the 20th century as an idea that he is a specter of celluloid, a specter of celluloid uh, coming from cinema and radio and television and technological advancements. He's a cautionary warning of the entities or the evil that we might be allowing into our homes and into our minds and into our psyches with the rapid advancement and development of technology and outside influences. Over the past few decades in gothic and horror fiction, the narrative was coming more and more into everyday aspects of horror in our lives, as well as more grisly and sensational or scandalous true crime elements. And Jack the Ripper was really the first serial killer and the first icon of that true crime genre, which has permeated literature and journalism for the past 125 years. Jack the Ripper represents an interdimensional specter of celluloid, or the cursed film and the haunted object of the public psyche. And my second interpretation of Jack the Ripper is that the quote of giving birth to the 20th century means the birth of the mass media serial killer in real life. 
For as soon as the killings in the Whitechapel, London area end in 1891, we have the arrival of the notorious and infamous and unforgettable serial killer H.H. Holmes, who claimed to have killed at least 27 people over the years of 1891 to 1894 upon the time of his execution. H.H. Holmes is considered the first well-known and media-covered American serial killer. And there are some who even theorize that Jack the Ripper and H.H. Holmes were the same person who had just moved continents. And while it's a pretty unlikely scenario, 1888 to 1891 in Whitechapel, London, and 1891 to 1894 in Chicago, Illinois, uh, gives us the first two mass media-covered serial killers of the modern age and contribute heavily today to the so-called serial killer-obsessed culture that dominates the modern era. And back on the topic of the birth of cinema, which was insurmountably influential on not only the horror genre, but reality in general, we have what is considered the very first horror film in 1896, with the three-minute short The Manor du Diablo, also known as The Haunted Castle, by director George Malays. And it's the very first silent film depicting a ghost and supernatural events. And we will cover uh, 1900 to the present day and the birth and evolution of a horror movie, as well as um, horror literature in the 20th century, and much more in the next episode of this podcast, so I hope you will stay tuned. And ladies and gentlemen, that brings us to our last and final segment in today's episode of Conspiraporn, and that is in the historical figure and literary figure uh, that it was impossible to leave out when talking about horror fiction and nonfiction, and that is with the publication of the classic book Dracula, which hit the scene in 1897 by Bram Stoker. And while this tale actually goes back uh, to a gruesome history in the 1400s, I wanted to wait until this last segment to talk about the publication of Dracula in 1897 as the 20th century was dawning, and how this relates to the man, myth, and the legend of Vlad Tepes, otherwise known as Vlad the Impaler of Romania, uh, who was considered a national hero in the mid to late 1400s. And like several of the topics in today's episode, it isn't really necessary to go into too much detail, uh, because pretty much everyone knows the tale of Dracula and how this was loosely based on the historical figure of Vlad Tepes. But no history of horror would be complete without at least taking a moment to discuss both the book as well as the inspiration uh, behind the novel. Now, uh, Vladislav Basarab was born in Transylvania in 1431, the son of a Wachilian prince hungering for the throne. Uh, currently stationed as a governor in a Transylvanian border town. Uh, Vlad was trained in etiquette and command, uh, exposed to the elements on stormy days to build his physical and moral character, and generally taught to be a warrior. His father was nicknamed Vlad Dracul, and thus he inherited the title Dracula, or Son of the Dragon. And uh, we'll discuss this idea of the dragon in more detail here in a moment. Uh, but during his life, he earned his own title, which was Vlad Tepes, Vlad the Impaler. And Vlad himself uh, took the throne by force in 1456, and one of Dracula's political rivals at the time was a priest, uh, Vlad the Monk, who also happened to be his half-brother. And due to all sorts of uh, complicated political pressures happening in Hungary, Dracula was becoming more and more dissatisfied with the German presence in Transylvania, and he decided to do something about it. And first, it was a diplomatic approach, requesting the German-occupied town of Sibiu to uh, give up its support for Vlad the Monk. 
And when no reply was forthcoming, Dracula struck uh, in an undeclared war across the mountains, savagely destroying the populations of a number of villages and towns and the property of the wealthy merchants who were patrons to his half-brother. And this was only one of the first raids on the country of his birth. And one of the most telling accounts, uh, in the words of the victims themselves, of Vlad's tactics of, of intimidation and cruelty uh, come with the brothers Hans, the porter, Michael, and Jacob in Dracula's palace in 1461. Uh, he tormented the three monks with many questions and dilemmas uh, that he posed to them, most notably playing their own fear of him versus their need to defend their faith. And at one point asking if he himself could be considered a saint for shortening the heavy burden of so many unfortunate people. Brother Michael answered meekly, assuming Dracula of his place in paradise and Michael was spared. Brother Hans the porter, knowing that he would be put to death for his honesty uh, of his words that were devoid of any flattery, he basically told uh, Dracula to go fuck himself. And then Dracula became mad with fury, uh, and apparently at the slur on his very real belief that because of his, uh, his anointment, his believed anointment, uh, that God would have pity on his soul. And then Brother Hans, of course, you can imagine, died most horribly. Now, it was at this time the first horror stories about Vlad Dracul uh, were widely published pamphlets written by German Catholic monks and refugees uh, that had escaped from Vlad's harsh rule. And indeed, his relationship with the church demonstrates a great deal uh, about the life he led. Now, there's no doubt that these accounts colored, uh, by, were colored by dramatic and political and personal necessity, uh, blackening the name of Dracula for posterity and paving the way for his vampiric image. Uh, but there was still much truth in the story, and it's a horrific story indeed. And this is to say that uh, in Vlad's own time, during his rulership, he was famous, or uh, rather infamous, as a harsh tyrant and dictator. Though to his own people, he was considered a political hero, despite the terror, or perhaps even because of the terror, that he instilled in his victims, rivals, and opposers. So, Vlad Dracul was already a notorious and well-known character in the mid to late 1400s, uh, only further immortalized through the fictional work of the book Dracula in 1897, uh, which was a very loose reimagining of this historical character, filled with a huge dose of artistic license and reinvention. And Vlad Dracul had a reputation for harshness and brutality many hundreds of years before Dracula by Bram Stoker was released in 18. Now, here's another account of Vlad's brutality. It was on Easter in a celebration in 1456, the same year that Vlad first achieved the throne of Wallachia. Uh, he invited the aristocracy uh, the aristocracy of the day to dine with him at his palace. And uh, these were the long-established noble, noble families of this country. And after serving them a sumptuous meal, his guards swarmed into the courtyard. The old and the infirm were impaled beyond the city walls for all to see, and the remainder were made up uh, to march, still in their fine Easter clothing. And the journey was some 50 miles in length, up the Argus Valley uh, to the village of Arfu. And at the end of the uh, journey, they found a pre-prepared brick ovens, lime kilns, and building materials. And the noblemen and their families were put to work, uh, rebuilding an extensively damaged fortress some 1,200 feet above the village, creating the well-known Castle Dracula, uh, where indeed one day Dracula's wife would throw herself from the battlements in response to a Turkish invasion. And at the end of this task... Uh, those that were still alive after building the castle, rebuilding the castle, were then impaled in front of their creation. And the length of each stake depended upon the ranks of the victim. 
the one nobleman wrinkling his nose as he dined with Vlad in a courtyard of cadavers was given an extra-long stake to put him above the stench of his fellows. And it was not usually the stake through the heart, uh, which perhaps helps to suggest the vampire mythos. But the victims were pierced from anus to mouth, and the stakes were carefully rounded at the end and bathed in oil to minimize tearing and in order to prolong the process of their agony and death. And whether he was always this careful is doubtful. Uh, it was in 1462 that the Turks marched across Wallachia to find a land poisoned and bare in response to their invasion. And when they reached the capital, uh, they were confronted with a forest, one kilometer by three kilometers, of impaled corpses, uh, the Turkish and Bulgarian prisoners Vlad had taken. So this made the Turks give up, and uh, they turned around and went home again, which was probably a very smart idea on their part. However, Vlad's cruelty wasn't confined uh, to this means of execution. He decapitated, blinded, strangled, hanged, burned, boiled skin, uh, stuck stakes into both breasts of mothers, and then thrust their babies onto them, and on and on. Uh, when his armies invaded the Germans of Transylvania, they had the people hacked to pieces like cabbage. And when his captain reported to Vlad that a particular village uh, wouldn't be taken by force uh, easily due to the courage of its inhabitants, Dracula then had the captain impaled. One of the concubines who hoped to gain uh, Dracula's favor by claiming she was with his child. Vlad discovered her lie and had her womb cut open from her sexual organs to her breast, then remarking, let the world see where I have been. One year, he asked the old, the ill, the lame, the poor, and the blind, and the vagabonds of his country to a feast in a large dining hall at the capital. At the conclusion of his meal, he offered them all an end to their misery and burned down the hall, letting none of them escape. In his six-year rule, he is said to have killed between 40,000 to 100,000 people, though his kingdom of Wallachia only boasted about half a million people. So he had quite the... Uh, Quite the death toll, uh, anywhere from 40,000 to 100,000 people in a, a pop, pop, the population was only half a million uh, in that territory at the time. Uh, modern Romania, uh, to modern Romania, Dracula is a hero of the people, a tradition carried down in oral folklore of a great warrior who defended his country from the Turks. Uh, this is in contrast to the bloodthirsty tyrant that the Germans have made him out to be or the cruel but just ruler of uh, Russian stories. Now, let's take a brief moment to get back into the idea of the dragon and even of Vlad Tepish uh, as a secret society character who was given the task of guarding the fire. In the year 1431, uh, Vlad Basarab was involved in a ritual that took place in the imperial fortress of Nuremberg. It was his induction into the Order of the Dragon, giving him the name Dracul in his home country. The order had been founded by the Holy Roman Emperor in 1387 and was similar to orders such as the uh, Tectonic Order of Knights, uh, and their duties were to defend the empire. And not widely known uh, was the undeclared aim of the society of gaining political supremacy for the House of Luxembourg, and thus only a, a select number were chosen for the honor of uh, the Order of the Dragon. Uh, Vlad Dracul's death in 1447, in which he was assassinated, uh, though some theorize that his death was faked, uh, he was the only member of the order who had remained loyal to his oath, at least in fighting the Turks. Uh, Dracula inherited, inherited membership, and his family was proud of the nickname, despite the double meaning of devil. His brothers were also referred to by some as Dracula, their descendants as Draculestes. Draculestes. Uh, the line died out, 
uh, is believed to have died out in the 17th century. <clears throat> Each member of the order wore a medallion showing a dragon and a cross. <clears throat> now, there are a few ideas here that come to mind. And the first is in relation to what we talked about at the beginning of this episode, and that was the medieval infatuation with the dragon motif and all of the symbolic representations that the dragon holds. It holds the mystery, and some would maintain that it guards a sacred fire. And we would see this in relation to the running theme of today's episode. And that is the idea of sitting around the campfire and telling the first horror stories, or the origin of the horror story. And Vlad Dracul is surely an icon of the horror story, both historically and fictionally. Uh, but there's another interesting concept here. And that is in the theory that, as Dracula was in a secret society, uh, the Order of the Dragon... Uh, so, too, were many of the monsters, such as witches and werewolves, as well as vampires. They actually represented sects of different underground secret societies that were all aligned against the Catholic Church uh, and the Vatican. Or uh, at least were underground societies that were fiercely holding on to their own pagan belief systems, so as not to be assimilated by the Catholic Church. And there's a theory that witches and vampires and werewolves uh, and more are actually symbolic of underground secret societies and sects that were opposed to the Catholic Church working in secret, and were thus deemed to be monsters or monstrous enemies of authority uh, to the Catholic Church, and demonized as almost mythical beasts. And whatever the case, it's an interesting idea to consider, and to consider the possibility that there was something deeper going on with Vlad's involvement in the Order of the Dragon. There's even the possibility that the word vampire or vampire is associated with fire, in the word itself, we have the word pyre, which connotes uh, burning uh, burning in the hearth, uh, and the root of wham in wampire could be related to the Egyptian word ram or rampire. The word ram in Egyptian being connotated to fire and fertility and war. So not only do we have the dragon connected to vampire lore, but possibly also a root symbolism of fire, which once again kind of comes full circle with one of the main themes of today's episode, and that is in the birth of folklore, by sitting around the campfire and telling spooky ghost stories. Now, ladies and gentlemen, please forgive me. I did not intend for today's episode to run nearly two hours, uh, so I decided to break this, this part of the episode uh, into two separate segments uh, to try to make it a little bit easier to digest. And I want to apologize as well. I'm sure, uh, you know, I've been talking for two hours almost, I'm sure I mispronounced a lot of things and uh, slurred a lot of words trying to get through this. I don't really edit this program. I just kind of run through it, and uh, I'm only using my phone as well. So if it's a bit janky, if it seems like it could use editing, I'm sorry. That's not going to happen at this point. So what you got here was almost two hours of me just running through, rambling off, chattering, uh, talking about the history of horror. But I hope some of you enjoyed it. I hope I did an adequate job of information spanning from roughly 6,000 years ago all the way up to the year 1900 with a brief history of supernatural horror and art, literature, and theater, and much more, and how this all leads into the modern era. And I definitely hope you'll tune into the next episode of the Conspiraporn Podcast as we tackle the subject of 1900 all the way up to the present-day horror in the year 2021. Uh, we'll be focus focusing a lot on books over the past 125 years but also the invention of the motion picture, as well as horror and movies and television and video games and so much more. So please stay tuned for the next episode of this podcast, uh, which I'll be releasing in the next week or two. And when all is said and done, we're going to be looking at about three to four hours of nothing but a history of horror and the supernatural done by me, unedited and on my phone.
So enjoy that. And if you enjoyed today's episode and you wish to leave some feedback or critique, please feel free to hit me up at www.conspiraporn.com or on Facebook or Instagram if we're uh, friends over there. Or um, go ahead and email me at mad247, that's M-A-D, the number is 247 at weirdness.com. And likewise, I have uh, two other websites I hope, you'll, I hope you'll check out. And the first being my personal blog, which I hope to start updating more often. And that's at www.primordialproductions.info. And then there's a website that is uh, devoted only to my original artwork. And it's all over there for sale. So I hope you'll take a take a look at that. Uh, any purchases will help to maintain this uh, podcast and as well as all the websites. So I'd appreciate it if you see anything over there that strikes your fancy. And you can find that at www.geneticmemory.online. And if you'd like to be featured on this podcast or uh, at the Conspirate Porn website with a special article, please hit me up. Uh, I'd like to, I'm definitely looking for collaborators on future articles and segments for this podcast. So once again, a sincere thanks for everybody listening to today's episode. Hope you'll share a link, help to spread the word, as I want to keep growing and expanding with this podcast, as well as all my websites. So until next time, stay tuned, and we'll be finishing up the history of horror by talking about some of the key events, books, movies, and television from the year 1900 to 2021. My name is Mad. This has been the Conspiraporn Podcast. Until next time, peace profound.